Our Father and our God, indeed, what a wonderful thing it is to be able to set our hope on Jesus who set his heart upon us first and know that you are our strong refuge, a refuge that can never be shaken so that indeed with the psalmist we could say, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Such a comfort it is in a world filled with pain where some of us are coming here knowing that there are things that we cannot control, things that bring us grief over family situations, over work situations, over relationships that are frayed. Father, thank you that we know that you are in the midst of all this hurt, our God, our portion, our cup, our wonderful inheritance, so that no matter what we may lose in this life, because you are our God, we have a beautiful inheritance. You are ever with us. You are the one who guides us. Indeed, as the psalmist says, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For in a world that seems to be out to get us, thank you, Father, that we dwell secure. Not because of our strength, but because you've got our back. And your care for us is such that it's not just for this life, it's for all eternity. For the psalmist goes on, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And indeed, we have this hope because Christ died and rose again. And he promises eternal life. And it's not simply life that never ends. But life in relationship with you, in your presence. So Father, thank you that we even now enjoy a measure of that. For your spirit dwells in us. So that we know you make known to us the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. And we know that the joy that we experience in the here and now because we are rightly related to you is just a foretaste of that great future that you've prepared for us at your right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And so, Father, we pray as we, as we come to your word, we ask that your spirit would refresh our souls would lift our weary heads and weary hearts that we may find our strength, our comfort 
our encouragement in you and you alone so that we may live for your glory and proclaim your greatness and majesty to all those around us. That we, your church, may truly be a place where we could say we are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That we, your people, may delight in one another because we delight in you. The supreme Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. This is Jesus' version of, uh, this is Luke's um, version of what in Matthew 5 is called the Sermon on the Mount. It is very possible that this is not Luke reproducing the Sermon on the Mount and cutting th certain things. Um, Ainsley, I was talking with him a couple of months, uh, a month ago. And he asked me, are you an environmental preacher? Are, are you an environmentally friendly preacher? Said, what do you mean? Do you recycle sermons? <laughs> this is pretty much probably Jesus using, using a different, uh, the same sermon but tailoring it to his audience. So preaching it on the plane rather than on the mount and talking about the beauty, the blessedness of being in the kingdom. So Luke chapter 6, and we'll begin with verse 20. And I'd like us to enter it this way. Um, in the musical Hamilton, there's a song called Yorktown. The world turned upside down. Now, with apologies to British loyalists, that song celebrates a fledgling America's victory over the mighty British Empire. Now, certainly, the American Revolution brought significant political, social, and economic change. Case in point, Alexander Hamilton, who is the protagonist of the musical, saw his circumstances reversed. He was a, an impoverished, illegitimate student. The revolution made him a successful lawyer with political clout, married to a rich heiress. Unfortunately, the revolution did not go far enough. Because for all of the success that Hamilton enjoyed, he was still a driven and unsatisfied man. And that leads to his downfall. See, the American Revolution, and for that matter, the French Revolution, could not get to the root of the problem. The frustration of sin's curse and the depravity of our own sinful hearts. But in the coming of Jesus, the world is truly turned upside down. Or, perhaps more properly, Jesus turns the world right side up. And we see that radical reversal that Jesus brings about in this sermon that fleshes out the values and ethics of the kingdom of God that has erupted into this world. So let me read from verse 20. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. 
And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm, I think you're realizing that Jesus is challenging all the messages that we hear outside the church, the messages that bombard, them, bombard us daily. See, we live in a society that values material comfort, pursues personal fulfillment, and craves social acceptance. And all of those on our terms, right? Right? But Jesus tells his disciples like Peter, James, and John, and Levi, people who have given up everything and are persecuted for Jesus' sake, according to James Edwards. Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry now, who weep now. In fact, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. See, Jesus is deliberately changing the way we think. We often think that we are blessed when our circumstances are to our liking, right? Jesus says, no, your blessedness does not depend on your material or physical circumstances, but in being relate, rightly related to him. If you are Jesus' disciples, then you are by definition blessed. He is reassuring us that no matter what happens, God is looking out for us. And that's why we started this service with Psalm 16. Jesus is training us to think God's thoughts after him, to view life from God's standpoint. Again, as we've said previously, the poor are those who depend upon the Lord, those who realize that they require God's help. See, poverty is neither a virtue nor an ideal, although it could make you more conscious of your need and dependency. Jesus is challenging us to view life from God's eternal standpoint and to align our desires to God's purposes. 
It's not that the poor are blessed because they're poor. The poor are blessed, look at verse 20, because yours is the kingdom of God. And it's not a gift that you earn, which is a contradiction in terms. It is a gift received by grace through faith in Jesus. See, Jesus isn't telling us how to enter the kingdom. Notice in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes and said to his and, and spoke to his disciples. Jesus is telling us how being in the kingdom guarantees our security and thereby transforms our values and perspectives. To possess the kingdom changes everything. We may not have much money, but we may we have what matters most. The kingdom. We enjoy God's favor and we will flourish because we belong to God. And that's why Jesus can say in verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And you notice it's a passive form, for you shall be satisfied. That's what scholars call a divine passive. It implies that God himself will act so that you are satisfied. He will comfort you. He will give you joy beyond compare. Daryl Bach would explain that the promise to the hungry, who are also the pious poor, is the promise of satisfaction from God. The reference is not so much to physical filling with food as it is to spiritual satisfaction at being received by God and welcomed as one of his children. The imagery is of the satisfaction that comes from being present at God's banquet table. Remember last week we talked about how Jesus was feasting with Levi and his friends. That was an anticipation of the messianic banquet when Jesus responded to the people who criticized him. Why are you eating and drinking with sinners? And why do your disciples eat and drink? That doesn't look like repentance. He says, well, how can you fast when the bridegroom is with you? You should be feasting because the bridegroom is here. He's saying the messianic banquet is here. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You're present at the banquet table of God. He's the one who leads them into righteousness while promising to care for them. The key to the present is the security of one's relationship to God as it is brought to fruition in the future. Now, that does not mean that we ignore the hungry. You will notice, if you look at verse 17 to verse 19 of Luke 6, that Jesus himself didn't just preach. He healed the sick and exorcised demons just before telling his disciples, blessed are you. You see, knowing that we are blessed by God moves us to meet the needs of others. So in Acts, the sequel to Luke, Luke tells us in Acts 4, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then notice what he says. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. God's grace that was upon them fueled their sacrificial generosity. We can share our stuff because God has graciously given us what endures forever. The kingdom of God. It's, it's the treasure that no one can take away. That no economic downturn can diminish. And so Jesus goes on, verse 23. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you. And spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. What does it matter when people mock you? When your reward is God himself. What does it matter when you're excluded from a group because of your beliefs? Belief in Jesus Christ. When you're bound to Jesus Christ. See, again, Psalm 16, our hope is to be in the presence of God, enjoying His pleasure and delighting in Him. And it's not a reward we earn. We receive it because Jesus has purchased us for Himself. So that Jesus is telling us to look beyond our present circumstances and suffering to the hope that He has secured for us by His death and resurrection. Because no matter what following Jesus might cost us, he is worth the sacrifice. And you see that because Jesus goes from pronouncing blessings to pronouncing woes. It serves as a contrast. And it serves to clarify why, why it's better to be made fun of and to be, to be canceled if you will, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because basically to be outside God's kingdom is horrible. The woes are meant to serve as warnings that call people to repentance. Jesus says in verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, it's not that it's wrong to be rich. Abraham and Job were rich. In fact, they defined rich. But their trust and confidence was in God and God alone. See, what is being condemned, according to Daryl Bach, is a misplaced focus that zeroes in on this life and its possessions without concern for God's desires or fellow humans. And the danger of succumbing to things of only temporal value is all too real and deceptive. And we all know that pull, don't we? But let me warn you. In Psalm 73, Asaph almost lost his faith because he envied the prosperity of the wicked but he was rebuked and reoriented when he went into the house of God and he realized in verse, Psalm 73, verse 18, 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? Riches don't last. And if you put your heart on riches, this, you only have them in this life. And an economic downturn could wipe them away just like that. But if you do not put your faith in God, then judgment is your destiny. If you're living for yourself, then no matter how successful you might be, you really have no future. Your future is this. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And so we urge you to flee from the wrath to come and to take refuge in Jesus. And we who have put our faith in Jesus can testify that he is worth more than anything this world can offer. Because Asaph goes on in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? This is Asaph coming to his senses. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is at the heart of Jesus' sermon. We are truly blessed because we are in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus moves on. If we are in the kingdom, then we are blessed and our blessedness should drive our conduct. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Again, that's very countercultural, isn't it? We live in a world where John Wick rules. Or John Wick rules rule. You hit me, I hit you back. Harder. But as people who enjoy God's love and forgiveness... Jesus tells us that we need to treat others the way God treats us. And it's not about your feelings. It's about how we act. And by the grace of God, the feelings follow. You see, just as Jesus responded to our rebellion against him by laying down his life to pay for our sins, in the same way, we respond to evil by doing good. We even pray for those who do us wrong in verse 28. And we see that actually going on in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, while being stoned to death, asked God to forgive those who were stoning him. In the same way that Jesus, when he was on the cross, asked the Father to forgive those who crucified him. Verse 29, we don't retaliate or seek to get even. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, it's not meant to be taken literally, 
to be struck on the cheek is an insult. And basically, we don't retaliate when we are being insulted. Instead, we're ready to forgive because we trust God to take care of us and make things right. And when we have entrusted the issue to God, then we are able to seek justice properly. See, Jesus isn't telling us to be naively passive or reckless. He's telling us that we are supposed to overcome evil with good. And I have to tell you, providentially, I, I'm preaching this to myself <laughs> because we, we're dealing with our, we were dealing with our landlord and I had to repent this week of my anger and my annoyance and all of those um, excuses I have for my unrighteous anger. And it's, it's uh, one, it's lowered my blood pressure. <laughs> Two, it's also helped us make good decisions that seek not just our good, but seek the good of our neighbors, even if it costs us something. But here's the thing. Knowing the self-giving love of Jesus enables us to cultivate generosity and share what we have. Verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And it's not, again, it's not being naive or passive or a doormat. It's not being tied to your possessions and responding to evil, overcoming evil with good. So that instead of allowing the way people treat us to determine our behavior or our attitude towards them, we respond with the grace of God. Verse 31, we treat people the way we want to be treated. We show them the grace that we have known from God. And it's not about getting people to treat us well. You, you know, what happens is, we, we treat people the way we want to be treated, expecting them to treat us the same way. Well, sorry. You don't live in the same world I do. <laughs> Jesus is saying, look, regardless of how they respond to what you do, do it right anyway. As beneficiaries of Jesus' matchless love, our love is meant to go beyond the ordinary. See, again, verse 32, 33, 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Like, how are you different? Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. See, during those times, people gave gifts expecting something in return. And you will see that in chapter 7. Uh, turn with me, Luke chapter 7 and verse um, 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. You notice what their reason was for asking Jesus to come? He deserves the healing, or your, he deserves a favor because he's done us a favor. I scratch your back, you scratch mine, it's nothing new. And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not the paradigm that guides the people of God. As the followers of Jesus, we give without expecting anything in return. Because God has been so generous to us, we actually don't need a return. Look at what he's done. Look at verse 36, uh, verse 35. What does he promise? But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Well, what's the generosity of God entail? Well, he has made us his children and he promises to reward us with himself. He's more than enough. And what Jesus is saying then is that our relationship with our merciful Father should drive the way we relate to the people around us. That's why he says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And so along the lines of that mercy, verse 37 Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, just so we're clear, do not judge, frequently misquoted, does not mean never to judge. Get that straight. Let's get that right. On matters essential to faith and morality, both Jesus Luke 11, 39-52, and Matthew 23, and Paul, Galatians 2, 11-14, when he rebukes Peter, expressed clear and forceful judgments. Do not judge is thus not a command to refrain from ethical evaluation or spiritual discernment, but a warning against a fault-finding and censorious spirit that binds rather than liberates others in the faith community. And I, I think we all need to hear that because we're all great at fault-finding, right? We're all great at seeing what's wrong with someone else. But again, being part of God's kingdom means we treat others just as God treats us. See, if God were to nitpick everything about us, would we be around? <laughs> like really, right? And that's what needs to drive our generosity. Because God has been lavishly generous to us. We give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Now, this is not an investment plan. I give so that I get, so that God gives me more. No, please. That's just sanctified selfishness. The reason why we give is that God has been bountifully, lavishly generous to us. And we follow Jesus' example and are trained by him. That's verse 40. 
That's the point of Jesus' parable of the blind leading the blind. Stop acting like everybody else. Don't let the blind lead you and your behavior. Instead, be a disciple of Jesus. Act like a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And yes, all of us need serious training. That's why everybody's the way they are. That's part of God's way to train us. But what Jesus wants us to do is to be discerning in whom we follow. We mimic those who reflect the grace and mercy of Jesus in the way they relate to others. And as we look for models, we also need to guard ourselves against a critical spirit. That's why Jesus, in verse 41, warns us about pointing out the sawdust in our brother's eye when we've got a load-bearing beam in our own eye. I mean, really, how do you see that sawdust in the first place? When, you're so, when you've got something really huge in your own eye. And I think you get the, the image, right? Jesus is saying, be critical of ourselves first. And let's deal with our own sinfulness first so that we could truly help others grow in godliness. That's why he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. In everything we do, we are seeking the best interests of our brother. And that's love. Christ-like love working for the benefit of the body. And Jesus expects his disciples to embody this whole dynamic of self-giving love and sacrificial generosity in the life of Crestwick. If we are to be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse to the lost, this is ground zero. Self-giving love, sacrificial generosity. Because that's what a gospel culture, that's what God's, the life of the kingdom of God looks like. And at this point, if you haven't fallen asleep, you might be saying, RJ, you're crazy. What Jesus is demanding is beyond anybody's ability. And absolutely, you'd be correct. Yes, I am crazy, but there's also the fact that imitating Jesus is beyond our ability. But that is why Jesus talks about fruit in verse 43. The actions and attitudes that Jesus demands of his disciples reflect the kind of tree you are. Or in other words, it's a matter of the heart. Verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And that's the wonder of what Jesus has brought about by his death and resurrection. He has brought about the new covenant promise of sins forgiven, new hearts indwelt by his spirit. 
We are new creations anticipating a new world. See, that's the real revolution. That's why we could talk about this new kind of community. Because Jesus has, is creating it by rescuing people like us from the kingdom of darkness. And he is bringing us into his kingdom of light and love. And I agree, we are a long way from being like Jesus. But the wonderful reality underlying this text is that the Spirit of God is constantly at work in us, convicting us of our sin, just as he did when I was really mad at my parking situation. And then he shows us the cross of Christ and reassures us of his unfailing love. And in doing that, the Spirit is reorienting our dis distorted desires and disordered loves by pointing us to the infinite depths of Christ's love so that we wouldn't just be comforted by that love, but that we would love him and love him even to the contempt of self. Or in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, the Spirit causes us to be so gripped by the love of Christ that we would desire to live for Him more and more. And in living for Him, reflect His character in our dealings with people. That's the way of the right-side-up kingdom of Jesus. And it's on that basis that Jesus closes His teaching with a call to action. He challenges us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If we call Jesus Lord, then everything he said needs to be reflected in our lives. And he is pointing us to the fact that he is returning and he will judge if we respond to him in submissive obedience that is the fruit of faith, then we will be like that wise man who built his house on a rock foundation. His righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that fully pleased the Father enables us to withstand the flood of judgment that is to come. But if we ignore Jesus' claims and live for ourselves, no matter how many times we say we walked the aisle or signed that decision card. If we ignore Jesus' claims and live for ourselves, then we are fools who will be ruined in the flood of judgment. Jesus is confronting us with a choice between eternal blessedness on one hand and eternal damnation on the other. Following Jesus, submitting to his lordship will overturn our lives. It cannot be business as usual. And yes, it will be painful. But underlying everything Jesus has said is, isn't Jesus worth the pain? Doesn't his self-giving love deserve our total commitment? 
as people who are in the kingdom because Jesus set his love upon us first. My prayer is that we would live for him. He has blessed us beyond our wildest dreams. So let us live out the beauty of his right side up kingdom for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for your grace that, that refuses to give up on us. Even when we are so forgetful of that same grace and act as if it was up to us to protect ourselves, act as if our future depended on our aggressiveness as if you're up there and we're down here and you're leaving it up to us to figure it out forgive us for soft and we act that way we take matters into our own hands we act selfishly we act as if you are not the righteous judge who will make all things right. And we impose our own version of justice, which objectively evaluated is really injustice. Because we often want to take more than we ought. But thank you also that you don't just forgive us. You correct us. And you've given us your word so that we would see our sin. And you don't just leave it there. Your spirit convicts us and leads us back to you in repentance. And we thank you that you don't even stop there. For your spirit continues to reshape us to change our desires so that we want what you want, we love what you love, because first we love you. And you don't even stop there. Your spirit empowers us so that we may obey, so that painful, though it may be to put these truths into practice, your spirit gives us strength. Your spirit encourages us, comforts us. And your spirit has brought us into a community where we could encourage one another to keep following you and build one another up so that we can follow you. And we thank you, Father, that even as we see our failure, you give us hope because you have promised that one day when Christ returns, we will be like you. And these truths that we struggle to put into practice will one day become a reality in which we delight. 
Oh, Lord, we pray. Grow us. Shape us. So that in the here and now, we would begin to see the beauty of your ways. That we, your church, would really demonstrate to the world around us the beauty, the loveliness of your right-side-up kingdom so that people would be drawn to Christ for our good, for your glory. This is pray in Christ's name.